0: The text that the Lord has led us to, again through sequential exposition, is Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2, and it's really a look again at the whole chapter in light of the times that we're facing. And unbeknownst to me, Matthew 2 had a theme in it that was always there and was meant to be there, and the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write about this, but for it to coincide with the dynamics that are going on in our culture with uh, some perceived persecution that could be happening. This chapter is all about persecution. It's all about persecution directed towards the Lord Jesus Christ, who had come born as a newborn baby, and he was on the run, as if you will, in this chapter. He's moving around in light of persecution. I think all of us are asking the question right now, are we under Christian persecution in our country? We know it's been a world issue, but is it now a first world issue? Is it something that's happening in our country or even to us as the church? The times remind me of how we are constantly during the summer months evaluating in Alaska, what fire danger are we in? Can we have outdoor fires or not today? Has it rained or not recently? Are we in green or blue or yellow or orange or red? And I think we're trying to measure what level we're in and under right now as a church. Forbes magazine, I just you know sort of did a search on the web under Christian persecution, and one of the immediate hits was Forbes magazine, which is a secular socioeconomic magazine that eva- evaluates economic trends and trends at large that are involved with the economy, and one columnist wrote an article, stamped date stamped, February the 18th, 2020, so just before the pandemic dynamic really hit strongly and people began to focus on that and what to do or not do in light of the coronavirus. Christian persecution was brought up by Forbes magazine and this is a columnist, Eloina Ochab, if I'm saying that correctly, who also had written an article November 30, 2019, a year before, on Christian persecution. And in this one that was in February, she was picking up on this article that I found that was put together by Open Doors USA. It's 10 facts about Christian persecution, listing the countries that are dynamically under the threat of Christian persecution. So she writes... In her article under Forbes magazine, Open Doors International, this nonprofit organization under a World Watch list, had put together 50 countries that were undergoing severe Christian persecution. These are the countries listed in this article here. They are as follows: It's North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, India, and Syria. These are ones that are showing extreme levels of persecution. The World Watch List 2020 does not give much hope, she says, for persecuted communities. It's Christians that are under a grim picture of global persecution. It identifies, quote, in 2020, this is um, quoting the article from um, the nonprofit Open Doors, um, in 2020, 260 million Christians live in persecution. They're at high risk, extreme levels. That's 5 million up from 2019. The report emphasizes um, important changes that are happening in global trends. She says that countries which had previously avoided more intense levels, such as Sri Lanka and Burkina Faso, have now been reported as having destabilizing violence and fragile persecution, um, persecution making things fragile, I should say, in Africa and South Asia as well. She calls people who are leaders in this faith actors, those who are standing up. And then she says other actors or people who are leading persecution is, is kind of the battle between the two. According to the report, the situation in China continues to worsen as more and more churches in China are experiencing pressure at the hands of the Chinese state. 5,500 churches have been destroyed, closed down, or confiscated. In India, Christian minorities are subjected to extreme persecution. 1,445 physical attacks and death threats against Christians. In 2019, Nigeria, 2019, approximately 1,350 Christians were killed for their faith. Indeed, these numbers do not give much hope to the persecuted. She's talking about faith leaders who are standing up during this time, who are trying to take a stand. But she's calling for a comprehensive world response, not just for the church to stand up, but for uh, the global community to intervene on the church's behalf She cites the UK and the United States and Poland and Hungary as people who have led the way in this global phenomenon, these victims, and it just goes on and on. She said in Nigeria, there is uh, this Fulani herdsman who is perpetrating mass atrocities. In January 2020, a new actor has emerged, the Daesh fighters who have killed several Christians, atrocities, well, we understand that this has always been the case for Christians, acts of violence on a global level. If you're like me, you grew up understanding that the church has always been under persecution internationally, but that we have it really good in our country. And we've heard messages or Sunday school lessons our whole lives, if you grew up in the church, about the coming persecution, things that could be happening to us one day, but perhaps not so far in the distant future, right? You, you've heard that. Well, now I think we're all evaluating. Is this a problem that we have at our doorstep? Are we under Christian persecution? And I think it's very important for us to discern together and individually what is Christian persecution and are we under it? At one level, we're fraught with suffering in our world because of sin. We're always going to have sin, which means death, we we have sickness, we have things to contend with on that level because we live in a fallen world, but we need to determine what is just a trial and what is actually a direct assault on the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps even on his church. If the world is asking that question, then the church should be all the more asking a question like that. It shouldn't be a surprise that we are, as Christians, come under attack. Matthew 5, we're going to be there in probably a few weeks. The Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. This is a sign of being a believer. John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. Romans 12, 14, blessed those who persecute you. This is just the expectation of being a Christian that you're going to be Persecuted. Galatians six seventeen. Listen to this. Paul said at the end of that gospel, that um, epistle, he says, For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, which means that as the body of Christ, Christ is the head, he's ascended the right hand of the Father, but we're still here representing Christ. So the target is on us. Second Timothy three twelve indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As we raise the accountability of Christ and who he is and his holiness, it definitely draws persecution. Satan wants to snuff out the Lord Jesus. He wants to snuff out his witness. He wants to snuff out his body, his church, and the message behind it. The attacks that come from inside the church... Are discernible through false teaching and false teachers, but the attacks that come from outside the church sometimes are also subtle and creep in, and we perhaps need to be awakened to understand what an attack looks like and what it does not. Where are we in terms of the threat level? What is our fire danger number, or I should say color, right now? Sometimes a variety of attacks come, but we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Jesus sent us into hostile territory, didn't he, when we became Christians? Matthew 10, later in Matthew's gospel, says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, back to Matthew chapter 2, what we have here is a narrative that is showing different phases, four phases of Christian persecution. Four forms and four phases, four kinds, and four different ways to really understand and react to each one. We need to understand where we are in these phases. And in the providence of God, here they are right before us. The first phase that I want to bring up is conspiracy, conspiracy. It's verses 5 through 12, this is leading us back into where we've already ground we've already tread, which traces us back to Herod. Herod is the face of persecution through this Gospel Chapter 2 account. It's Herod the Great, that malevolent, evil, paranoid, domineering, homicidal, sort of maniac leader who wanted himself to snuff out Christ, him being an Edomite not full Jew, felt very insecure as the self-proclaimed king of the Jews. He had been given by the Roman authorities and the Caesar a widespread of power and land which really covered what amounts to the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. And he was the leader of that, at least in terms of Roman rule. He was hated by the Jews at one point. By the end of his life, he was. He had done a lot of Good things for them to try to build credibility, but ultimately felt very insecure as the wise men as we 've learned came into town as veritable king makers to affirm a king, affirm a true king of the Jews and one who would be ethnically pure and so he was very troubled, and the people were troubled because he was troubled because they didn 't know what Herod would do about this. this was bringing about persecution it was bringing about trouble and Herod being troubled gathered together his chief priests and scribes verse 4 to conspire with them to whisper with them in secret where is the king of the jews supposed to be born where specifically does the bible say that he's supposed to come from there's these there are these magi in town and they supposedly had followed a star or some sort of appearance and I need to make a deliberate effort to know where he would be born and they immediately said Bethlehem they're quoting Micah 5 two Bethlehem and by the way second Samuel 5 two says he come he will come right from the line of David. Right from this lineage that had been that we've explained through in chapter one, he's going to come right out of that line. He's going to be born five miles from here, right in Bethlehem. And by the way, we really don't even care to investigate it with you. That that's the scene. And so what Herod does with that is he then knows where the. the the supposed Messiah is to be born, but he needs to know exactly when he was to be born and how old he would be if he's already been born. And so he gathers together the wise men under the pretense of religion, under the pretense of being a co-worshipper. He's he's lying in his conspiring. He's this political megalomaniac who's conspiring with these Gentile people probably pagans in process of believing, magicians. He's gathering together in secret. And you see that beginning in verse 7. It says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. To ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. We need to calendar this out for when you started your journey from former Babylon, modern day Baghdad, 500 miles away, which you followed this this star, this supernatural appearance that has now shown you some things about the timing of the Lord or the timing of this king. And so we need to go down and worship him. Go find him and I'll follow you down there eventually and worship him with you. So under manipulation, under religious pretense, under hypocrisy, he wants to go down to Bethlehem, a place of a thousand or so people at that time. And he wants to be a fellow worshiper, supposedly. Really, he wants to keep the media small in terms of what he's going to do. He wants to do a deliberate target strike and assassination on one baby. He doesn't want to kill all the babies down there. It wouldn't have been hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands like Pharaoh killing off male children in Egypt. But this reflects that happening. It's sort of a a, a throwback to what happened then, happening now on a smaller scale in Bethlehem. Again, Herod was a killer. He killed one of his wives who he married for political reasons as a, a Jew. She was, uh, she was someone that he thought would give him political clout. He was a killer. He, was, he had killed his several of his sons who, who he thought were seeking to usurp his authority and conspiring against him. He was a murderer. He murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered his wife's brother. And so he did all of these things. In military strikes, he had wiped out a Maccabean revolt that had threatened um, Greco-Roman culture. And he wiped them out earlier on. And so it was nothing for him to do this sort of strike on babies and have that in his back pocket. But he wanted to keep it small. He wanted to just go after Jesus. And so the secret whispers were taking place in back room, backwater conversations. How does this play out for us? I think we just need to realize that we've grown up in a culture that has been whispering behind the scenes about Christ. Our culture on the face will say, oh, Jesus is a friend, I would worship him. He's just one of the religions. He's someone to follow. He's a good moral example, a good moral teacher. Even the founding fathers were an admixture of true believers and those who were philosophers who, who affirmed Christ in a philosophical sense or an ethical, moral sense as the son of man. We'll follow him. We're all friends, aren't we? We're all, we all love Jesus, don't we? But Really, they're secretly trying to stifle the gospel, water down the word of God and neuter the Lord Jesus Christ and his effectiveness and his witness as if they could. It's all by conspiring. It's all by whispers, snuffing out the gospel. It's in times like these when we need Jesus the most of all, right? And the church stands up and affirms that the Lord Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the, the way of the narrow road that leads to heaven. And we need to all the more say that Jesus is the way, amen? He is the truth. He is the life. He is our Lord. And not be fearful of this threat of conspiring, but the second kind of threat is coercion. Coercion. I want us to look at that. And that's verses 13 through 15. I have four different phases of persecution. We're going to cover this second one and we'll leave the next two to next time. Verses 13 through 15 is where we haven't covered. We've covered all the way up in past teaching that the wise men were led right to the front door of Jesus Christ. They were led by the reappearance of the Shekinah star that showed them right where Jesus was to be. What, I bring that up just to say that this is happening in rapid succession. We know that the Lord Jesus had been born probably about 10 months prior that the shepherds had come around the stable. They had shown worship and given worship to the Lord in that time. The angels had worshiped the Lord in that time. Now it's time for the Gentile pagan um, magi to come and convert and, and to adore the Lord Jesus Christ with true worship. And all of this is happening quickly because it would have been just a day's journey from where they were with Herod in Jerusalem, five miles south to go to Bethlehem, only five miles. And so that was all happening in the same day. Herod would have found out that, that the wise men had basically, from his perspective, acted as double agents at that point. They had turned out away from Herod's leadership to the leadership of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and all that was happening in the dynamic of one single day. And so the threat moves from conspiring to coercion, coercion. We see this beginning in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that's the wise men, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Now, this is one of four dreams that Joseph receives where he, while in a dream state, is communicated with by the angel of the Lord This is representing direct contact from God to Joseph, telling Joseph things that he would not otherwise know just walking around. He wouldn't know what to do as just a human husband walking around other than the Lord intervening in his life with revelation, with direct revelation from God to him. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Applying God's Word to our current cultural situation makes no sense whatsoever to someone just walking around that has no direct contact with the Lord. We, in the same way, have direct contact with the Lord through His Word, through the Holy Spirit's illuminating work in our hearts. This is why I'm asking all of us to to think about our times, to respond to the times, to email us and and congregationally speak to us in terms of what we need to do as a church and the direction we need to go. It's why elders come together to try to discern the will of the Lord with the word of God because we have revelation. We have a way to think through what to do in light of the times. And Joseph is an example of that. Every time Joseph received an intervention, a dream, it's highlighted like this. Matthew says, verse 13, behold. In other words, readers, wake up. Think about what I'm about to say here. This is an intervention. It says an angel of the Lord appeared. The word appeared means shined. The the angel is shining light on the situation. He's catching Joseph up. In a dream, a dream is different than a vision in the sense that Paul received a vision on the Damascus Road. He was fully awake when it happened. Saul being converted to Paul, seeing the Lord, though physically blinded, he's seeing a vision. Uh, you have John the Revelator who wrote the book of Revelation. He received a vision of the future while he was fully alert and awake. You have different scenes and scenarios where you have visions, but you also have dreams. And I don't want to make too much of this, but Joseph being in a dream is showing what the Lord was doing while Joseph was sleeping. And then when Joseph would wake up, this is what Joseph needs to do. This is a picture of the Lord being sovereign and in control and providentially providing the circumstances of things. And then Joseph wakes up and he's got to act and he's got to respond. There's God's sovereignty and human responsibility laid out before us at every step of the way. Incidentally, every one of these dreams has a prophetic fulfillment attached to it. And that's another sign that God had this planned out all along the way. It might be hard to stomach, but even persecution is part of God's will. He's not culpably responsible for the sin of Herod or any person that's persecuting the church but this is all part of his divine providence and what he's doing and what he is up to. And the prophetic affirmations every step of the way show this to be very clear. Out of Joseph's four dreams, three of them are directly related to persecution. The first one that he received was the dream and revelation from the angel of the Lord, where the Lord was saying, hey, don't put Mary away. Don't divorce Mary. She has conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this baby is the Savior of the world, and this is the one whom you should name Jesus, which means Savior. And that was an intervention. But the next three, and picking up on verse 13, deal directly with Christian persecution. The last two will subsume together under um, the idea of behold, and the angel appeared. These are the final dreams, beginning in verse 13 verses 19 to 23 but here we're looking at the step of persecution called coercion there's conspiring and then there is coercion what's the coercion well this is because joseph is tipped off by the lord that herod is coming something is coming there's pressure from the outside that's coming. That means you need to pick up and move. Remember, they were in a house at this point, they were established. They'd been given the treasures from the wise men. So there they are, fully established, fully in their home. Joseph goes to sleep. The wise men have just left, and he's seeing the angel of the Lord in this vision. And the angel is saying for Joseph to rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you the dream was not left without some hope remain in Egypt until I tell you in other words I'm going to reconnect with you and tell you to do something else but the threat is for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him so you have the toddler or baby 10 month old I don't know exactly how old but Herod, this over ruler himself is coming to destroy this baby. Rise, take action. That's where Joseph shows himself to be very proactive in his leadership. The head of the household. He doesn't, he doesn't wait. He doesn't wonder what to do. He hears from God and reacts. Wake up, Mary. Let's use perhaps the treasure we've been given to relocate. Let's relocate now, At night, verse 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Went right away, went right away. Did not stick around. Whatsoever We don't know a whole lot about Joseph. We know he was a carpenter. We know he was a tradesman. But we do know that he was a godly man and someone who listened to the word of God, listened to the Lord, and reacted. That's his testimony. In one sense, Joseph is very, very nondescript. After Jesus will grow up and, and be 12 years old or so and is seen in the temple, um, basically confounding the teacher's. Um, the parents are looking for him. That's our last account of Joseph, as far as I know, from Scripture. They're looking for him, and they're in awe of him. After that, by the, wed- the first um, miracle of Christ in Cana, the wedding, only Mary is there. Where's Joseph? He's probably gone to be with the Lord at that point. He's died. But Joseph was a godly man, and he's leading here. Is it time to flee? Whether there's soft coercion, this probably is hard coercion. There was a plan that's conspiring, then you have coercion. That's a real threat. And what Joseph does is flees. It's not always time to flee under persecution. Sometimes the best thing to do is do nothing different than what you're already doing under persecution, under coercion. Stephen, the first martyr for the church in Acts 7, the first Sort of deacon, evangelist set apart, giving the Bible's narrative, Genesis, to the New Testament church, connecting all of the pictures and prophecies of the Old Testament to Christ, is standing before the Sanhedrin, and that is an immediate threat to them and their authority, and so they kill him. He didn't run. He stood strong, he looked up into heaven, saw a vision at that point, because he was fully awake, and saw Jesus, the Lord Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father, standing in full affirmation of Stephen and what he was about to do, which is surrender his life for the sake of Christ, which was the blood of the martyr, which was the seed of the church, which took off in all fury and expansion. These heavier times are the times that we need to be strong together and stand together and, and to move within the Spirit's leadership, the Lord's leadership in our lives, and, The Lord, at this point, for Joseph and his family, was leading them to run, to flee, to get away, to, here's the word, escape the persecution, the threat of it, go to Egypt. Paul, when he was converted, he was Saul, he was the the chief threat to the church, he was dragging families into courts and dragging them into jails, men, women, and children. He was standing, giving his full endorsement over Stephen's execution for the faith. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a threat. He was the face of the threat of the New Testament church. He was converted on the road to Damascus. You know that. And so the early church struggled to fully trust him, but they did because he was preaching the gospel in the synagogues. And some of the Jews were believing, but the Jews in general, by and large, wanted to kill Paul. And so the church helped him escape, discerning that it wasn't his time to be a martyr at that point, escaped and lowered him through a window in a basket down on the other side of the wall of Damascus. Acts chapter 9, verse 25. So it's time to go. Sometimes it's time to stay. Martin Luther Here I stand, I can do no other. I cannot, I will not recant. And sometimes it's time to go. And it was time to go. Where were Joseph and Mary going? They were going to Egypt. And you say, well, that really is a difficult thing to do, to relocate there. A pagan, sort of dark arts region. A land that would not be... uh, welcoming to the jews but actually there were many jews who had already fled there under persecution for their faith and there were a million that were established in a town called a city called alexandria and they had colonized there and so i bet mary and joseph just melded into that culture it was a nice place to go and meld and blend and find a safe haven and community there. That's probably what they did. That's probably why they were directed there, but they weren't left there long. Jesus, I don't believe, crew up there as an adolescent or a teenager. Some people will conjecture that and say that his miracle power was contested by the dark arts there, but all of that is just mumbo-jumbo. He wasn't there long at all. He wasn't there long at all. At least that's not the flow of Scripture. It says, verse 15... Um, Well, they departed, they went to Egypt, verse 14 and verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod. Well, Herod died soon after um, these events with the Magi. Within a year, he died. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Here's the prophetic fulfillment with the intervention of the dream. This is a direct quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. Hosea was talking about who? Who? The children of Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus under Moses, a deliverer, somebody who prefigured Christ. Israel itself is God's earlier son in the Bible. Israel is called as a nation my son and God's son. And so this is a picture of God's son being delivered by Moses out of the hand and tyranny of Pharaoh into freedom. That all is a prophetic picture that's overlaid onto Christ who fled to Egypt, went there, and then was the deliverer coming out of Egypt. Why are these things important? This is a pictorial prophecy or a type of Christ. It's typology. It's picture prophecy versus a direct verbal prophecy, prophetic fulfillment. The earlier prophecy I mentioned in verse 6 where they diagnose where Jesus was growing up. He was born in Bethlehem. He's right there. That's word specific. This is pictorial prophecy, which is showing that the whole Bible ties together and all of the Bible is about Jesus. The sacrificial system is about Jesus. The bronze serpent that was raised up when the children of Israel are wandering through the wilderness being eaten alive by fiery serpents for their complaining spirits. The bronze serpent that is the picture of salvation to anyone who would look upon that serpent raised is a picture of Christ who would one day be raised up on a cross for our salvation, John 3, 14. This is typological fulfillment. And that's what Matthew is doing here. For the Jews to say, Hosea was talking about the Israelites then, but Hosea, whether he knew it or not, is talking about and predicting what Jesus was going to do being delivered out of Egypt, coming out of Egypt, coming back home, as the Savior. Well, the phase of conspiring led to coercion. And under coercion, they fled and then came home. They had picked up their lives for personal safety, they'd adjusted to a situation. And they'd come, uh, come through this with the clear provision that the Lord had provided, probably from the wise men's offerings. What is the Lord doing in our church? What phase are we in? How are we to discern the times and what, how are we supposed to react? Are we under Christian persecution? Are we under conspiring, whispering, backwater meetings? Or, or are we under some kind of soft coercion these days? Let's discern that together from God's word. Let's read God's word together. I had prepared six more pages of notes to share this morning, but we're done. The next two points are better than these first two. And we'll see them next week together.